Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hi, everyone. Claire and Nicole here. We're very excited for you to listen to this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. In this episode, we interview Representative Vicki Goodwin. She represents Western and far south Travis County. She was elected in 2019, and she tells us all about her race, how she decided to run, her political upbringing, and gives us some really great insights on public education and what it's really like to tackle that huge issue as a representative. So there is lots of great nuggets in this conversation, a lot that Nicole and I learned, especially about these different crazy formulas the state uses for funding public education. Spoiler alert, not enough. As a matter of fact, there's somehow still a surplus that goes back to the state. It's like mind boggling. Oh my gosh, Nicole, it's crazy, right? Yes. It was crazy. I mean, and it was definitely an insight that I did not have before. I would also point out and hope that everybody tunes in to how amazing Representative Goodwin is in terms of how she views her job and that it really is about listening to constituents. And I love her stance on maybe she won't always agree, but she is always willing to listen. And it gave me a lot of hope for who our representatives are that there are people who really do believe in public service. So it was great. So great. All right. Let's listen to the interview. Tune in, everybody. To start off with, we were hoping to learn a little bit about your history and how you even came to this place where you're a state representative. So could you share with us a little bit about your early life, like where you grew up and some of the things you were interested in when you were younger? Sure. Well, I grew up in Dallas, Texas and lived there through elementary and high school, I was interested in horses and reading. I could spend an entire day at the library and just that would be great for me. Really never thought I would get into politics. It wasn't something when I was a kid, I was like, yeah, I'm going to run for office. Really, I oftentimes would look at what my parents were doing and say, oh, I'm not going to do that when I grow up. My parents both owned their own businesses and I saw how hard they worked to keep them going. And so I was like, yeah, I'm never going to own my own business. But I ended up owning my own business. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Both of my parents were teachers. So I said the same. And I wound up teaching public school for 10 years. So completely get that. Yep. And my mom ran for office. And I thought I would never run for office. But then I did. Never say never. (laughs) I was reading that in an article, an older article you did with the Austin Chronicle. And you mentioned your mother being a Dallas School Board trustee. And it made me wonder, like, what were some of your memories of that experience when she did that? Were you like block walking with her and going to debates? Like, what's your memory of that time? Well, so it's really kind of funny because my mom was very involved with the PTA the entire time I was growing up. If there was a volunteer activity, she signed up for it. She even started an organization called Positive Parents of Dallas, which was to get realtors aware of the good things that the Dallas schools were doing. And so she just grew through that process to where people knew her so well. And the superintendent of the schools asked her if she would run for the board. And she said, you know what, 
the only way you can get me to run for the board is if nobody else is running. And so mm-hmm. honestly, her campaign, I did not block walk. We didn't do all of that typical field work because she was kind of hand chosen. I think perhaps it was, there was no primary. And so it was just an opportunity for her to pretty easily get into office. And so my recollection was that while she did do some mailers and some simple things like that, maybe some postcards that we labeled and put stamps on, we didn't do a lot of door knocking or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you that while she was on the school board, I had an opportunity to go with her to Washington, D.C., while the Dallas School Board was advocating for the schools. And that was a really fabulous trip. I think that's one of the things that got me so interested in government. Was there a specific thing within public education that she was really on fire for? Just the schools in general, but I will say there was a bond election at one point in time. The schools were needing some TLC. In fact, the high school I went to had a roof issue. And so when it rained, water would come through and there were buckets in the hallways. And so when the bond election was coming up, she knew it was going to be tough to pass. And so she basically volunteered me, a high school student, Mm -hmm. to go and speak to a group of people about my experience in the school and why the bond was so necessary. She didn't tell me until I arrived that this was a room full of businessmen. And so I was completely intimidated, a 17-year-old getting up in front of all these men at a luncheon event. But I just told them about the buckets in the hallway and the condition of our school. And ultimately, that bond election did pass. That's amazing. amazing. Like she was laying some groundwork, like little did any of you know, like, oh, we're going to get you ready to go testify and speak before crowds and yeah, Yeah. make your case. That's That's amazing. Can I throw in a little personal thing? Well, I grew up in the Dallas area. I grew up in Richardson. And the first school where I taught was in Dallas ISD. It was Kramer Elementary, kind of North Dallas. So I'm so curious what high school you went to. I went to Hillcrest. Oh my Uh, goodness. Yes. Yes. Eventually, I think Kramer does feed into Hillcrest, I think. So my elementary school was Dandy Rogers. And at the time, they were just starting busing in Dallas. And so that was a big deal in the neighborhood. A lot of the parents honestly pulled their kids out of school at that time because of trying to integrate the schools. But my parents were very firm that all kids should get a good education and we're not going to send you to a private school or anywhere else. We're going to have you go to the neighborhood school. Then I got best when I went to middle school to E.D. Walker, which was nowhere near where I live. I was going to say a a neighborhood school. But again, it was in that effort to integrate schools. I don't think it was a complete success or a complete failure. I think it's hard because most families want their kids to go to school in their neighborhood or as close to it as possible. But at the same time, it would be nice to have some diversity. Right. It's a messy problem with Mm -hmm. (laughs) messy solutions. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think we're already touching on this, but I was going to ask, what was the conversation like around the dinner table with you growing up? It sounds like y'all did discuss politics. Was there anything specific that you remember your parents impressing upon you when it came to politics? Yeah, well, again, around schools, what I really recall is my mom often talking about the school finance system. I think the bottom line is we just don't put enough money into our public schools We just have to wring every little dollar out of the legislature. And so at the time, DISD was struggling. And these days, since I live in Austin, I often hear about AISD struggling with the same thing. We want to be able to give our teacher raises to keep them. 
we want to be able to retain the best teachers. And when basically salaries have been flat since 2010, I recently went to an event by Raise Your Hand Texas where a university professor from the University of Houston showed us some graphs and really not only has stayed flat, but it's gone down in 2019 dollars. So teachers are not making more than they were over a decade ago. And that's just crazy. And that's why we see so many teachers leaving the profession. So around the kitchen table, my mom was talking about school finance and how we needed to fix it. And we're still dealing with that problem today. I know it's unreal. Why do you think that Texans just, I don't know if it's Texans, but the Texas representatives don't prioritize funding schools? Like, why is that? What's the hang up? I think they're so used to always being conservative with their dollars and, oh my goodness, we need to have this big piggy bank, which is our rainy day fund. We're always just so conservative when it comes to fiscal matters. And honestly, I'm a fiscal conservative as well, but I think that we just don't have our priorities right. Right now, the Republicans are spending $4 billion on Operation Lone Star and border security. And we're not doing a good job of it at all. I mean, we have Mm -hmm. migrants coming to the U.S. and dying. And it's just a terrible situation. I think we just, the Republicans tend to look at things from a very different lens. I think if we could take the dollars that we have coming in and say, look, our highest priority is our students. Better educated population just leads to more success all across the board. And so let's really pay our teachers well and not make our schools struggle so much. Wow. (laughs) That's it, right? I mean, not its values and priorities and what it is that you deem as important. Because yeah, it seems really obvious that we could find the money if it were a value, a shared, a true shared value of leadership. That hurts my heart. It's like, it just seems so obvious. And I don't know if that's just my point of view, because I come from a family of school teachers. I was a school teacher. I have children. All of those things, I think, just can completely prime me to be, to feel as if it's the most obvious value and priority in the world to educate children. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's just really difficult to understand how you can't make that connection, Mm -hmm. right? That that's what our state needs to thrive in the long run. And that this path that we're on isn't sustainable in terms of having a really healthy population or thriving population, but clearly it's just not as simplistic as I want to think that it is. Yeah, all problems are complex. And I think sometimes what I hear from some Republicans is that, well, we put a lot of money into our schools, there's waste. And so in my opinion, we should perhaps do a study of what does it really cost to educate a child? Because I think a few years ago, we were in a better position in terms of the amount of money we spend per child, but then we don't have any mechanism to increase that over time. And so every year that goes by, we fall short. And I do recall in 2019, we had gotten to where the state was getting close to an equal share with local school districts. To me, it should be a 50-50. You know, the state should be chipping in 50% and school districts 50%. But at that time was around 45% state share. Now we're down to 34%. So the state is continually every year putting in less while the school districts are making up that difference. And that's why I hear so often people say, why do my property taxes go up so much? It's this very poor funding system that we have for our schools. So let's pause on that or really highlight (laughs) this. 
which is what is that pie? How are schools funded? Yeah, actually, we just pulled the numbers so I can tell you exactly. State funding is 34%. Federal funding is about 10%. Local funding, so from the different school districts, is 52%. And then recapture is the final 3.5%. So really, the bulk of it does come from our local school districts. And the other fact is that charter schools, they get public dollars, but 100% from the state because they don't have school districts. And so, again, the funding for traditional public schools and charter schools is very different. Like I said, 100% of their funding comes from the state. Can we back up? Because, Claire, I feel like you know, (laughs) but here comes Nicole with (laughs) even having taught, right? I'm still quite ignorant. What's recapture? I don't know what recapture is. Sure. It's the idea behind making sure every district in the state and every student in the state is going to get an equitable education. So you've got some areas of the state where their income levels or their property values aren't as high as other places, so less property wealth. And so through their property taxes, they can't raise enough to even support the student, the basic allotment, which is just a basic amount that we think each student needs to be educated. So they'll take money from the wealthier districts and transfer it to the less well-off districts through recapture. Is this what used to be called Robin Hood? It was that. It is. It's the same as Robin Hood. Yeah. Okay. The technical term, I guess, is recapture. Got it. Really kind of an oxymoron because it's like, who is recapturing the money? The state is should be the taking system. It's so that we can share and make sure all districts are well-funded. It makes me wonder, hearing you talk about these different formulas, who's determining the formulas for how much the state pays and how much local property tax entities pays and why are charters different? Like who's making these behind the scenes decisions? So it is the legislature. And in 2019, we did uh, tweak the formulas. We added more to the basic allotment. So we bumped that up to $6,130 or $160 per student. And then on top of that, every student gets weights. Let's say they are an English language learner, they get a little extra. If they're on free lunch program, they get extra. If they're on reduced lunch program, they get extra. So There's a lot of different weights that are given for different reasons. And then there's all these really super complex things about a golden penny. It just is very ultra complicated. It's kind of like the IRS tax code. I wish we could simplify it so that everybody understood exactly what was happening. I've asked for data on how much teachers get paid across the state. Just curious how much are the lower socioeconomic areas paying their teachers a lot less? Are charter schools paying their teachers less? Or how does it work out? And it really has not a lot of rhyme or reason, but it just has to do with this very complicated formula and whether the districts are getting an adequate amount to pay their teachers well or not. I think there's a few things that I would suggest to make it a better formula, one of which is making sure we have an annual adjustment to it. Because if you think about it, Typically, inflation means that your dollars buy less every year, right? And so I had proposed in 2019 that we have an automatic adjustment that's equal to the rate of inflation or 3%, whichever is less. And so for the last few years, the rate of inflation was actually less. 
Of course, this year, the rate of inflation would be higher, so it would be capped at that 3%. But it would keep the basic allotment increasing, and that would make a huge difference on recapture. And then the second thing I would suggest is that we look at the cost of living, like the housing costs, because Austin teachers are having a really hard time paying for rent in Austin or even mortgage if they're having to buy a home. It's just terribly expensive to live in Austin these days. And so we could give an allowance for that. And then the third thing I would suggest is that TEA has been calling some of our education dollars surplus. They'll go through the formulas and they'll say, well, we actually received more money than is needed. And those are surplus dollars. Once they label it as surplus, those dollars can go back to the legislature and we could be spending them on anything. Again, Mm -hmm. those dollars could be going to Operation Lone Star on the border, which has nothing to do with education. And so my bill would not allow that practice. It would say if these dollars are intended for our schools, they either stay in the schools or they go back to the taxpayers who paid those taxes. Personally, I want them to stay in the schools. You know, I want us to keep those dollars and spend them on our schools. But I also don't think it's reasonable to use them for a purpose other than intended. Yeah, it's strange to me. It's like, how is there surplus when teachers aren't paid enough and there was COVID and all these adjustments had to be made in school facilities and public education is expensive? How is there even surplus? Right. It just boils down to those formulas. Okay, so it isn't like I was attaching all this kind of emotion to it, you know, like, what would be the motivation for labeling it surplus? But it sounds like it's not emotional. This is just about dollars. And this is how it added up. And Mm -hmm. that is what was by the formula deemed surplus. Exactly. Okay, that helps. Because in my mind, I was like, TEA, what are you doing? How could you do that? But that's not how it works. Yeah, it's much but drier again, than I, I feel like maybe we could give them a provision that says if there are surplus dollars, let's find a use for them within our schools. Because I have so many superintendents who have said we would love to have more mental health counselors in our schools. We just don't have the budget for it. I, I think right now everybody realizes what a impact COVID has had. But even before that, we were dealing with a lot of mental health issues. Anxiety is out the roof stress and so forth in our young people. And so it would be helpful to have more dollars allocated to mental health within our schools. Definitely. I was sharing this with Nicole. I mean, just speaking about money for schools, I recently joined the Del Valley Education Foundation and our whole goal is to raise money for the district above and beyond what the taxes provide for the operations of the school. And I'm glad I can do that, but it's just crazy that when it comes to needing extra, it's not like TEA gave us back these surplus. It's like, oh, community members, can you give us money? And people are like, but I pay taxes. It's like, I know it's not enough. We need some more. And I know. it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's unfortunate time, that's how it is. I know. The first time I heard that teacher, that teachers actually get a federal credit for buying supplies for their classrooms. I was like, so the IRS, like people know this is happening. It seems crazy to me that we actually rely on teachers to buy school supplies for their classrooms. I Mm -hmm. shared with Claire that when I taught in Dallas, I taught at, well, the last school I taught at was 90% low SES. And so it had just become common practice that you hoarded supplies. (laughs) And so every year when Target would have their back to school sale and spirals were on sale, you know, for 10 cents each, I'd buy them in bulk and just kind of store them and when construction paper was on sale, you know, I'd buy it like crazy. And actually, when I came to Austin, I wound up at a wealthy school in central Austin. 
and that just wasn't the case anymore. The parents were able to supplement all the supplies that we needed. And I was just still in that habit of hoarding. It took me a long time to get (laughs) over that and to stop spending personal money to recognize that I didn't have to anymore. But it's Mm -hmm. wild how different it can be from district to district to school to school. Yeah, that just gave me an idea just about supplies and being able to allocate some money for supplies in some of the lower socioeconomic schools. It would make a huge difference. One thing I can say, too, is that that last school where I was in Dallas, I mean, shout out to the parents there who absolutely wanted to fully shop that school supply list and bring supplies in with their kids. Mm -hmm. And I know that they were doing the best that they could. And I don't even think I had many kids who didn't come with supplies. I mean, they really, even if it wasn't the exact list, it was pretty darn close. But those Mm -hmm. things run out. Like, it's really just like, that's a get you started kind of Mm -hmm. beginning. And so beyond that was when things would get a little dicey. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, I'm glad we're talking about public education to kick off our podcast. We're going to be talking about public education, sort of a back to school, helping people just understand how public education more or less works in Texas. It's it's very state specific, Mm -hmm. the way public education is funded, what things are taught, all of that good stuff. But to back up just a little bit, I'd love to hear just more about your run and what led you up to your run. Was there a moment where you thought like, I could be a state representative, I could be the one making those big, important decisions that really sparked like, I'm going to do this? Yeah, well, I honestly worked on a lot of other people's campaigns prior to deciding to run myself. And I always thought, that's what I'll do. I will help other candidates win their races. But then 2016 happened. That was a shock. And then in 2017, my daughter, my youngest child was a senior in high school. I had seen my house district being held by a Republican who just wasn't very receptive or very open to hearing our suggestions. And so I thought this would be a good time to run. My first step was really to talk to the person who had ran previously on the Democratic ticket, to talk to people who are very politically involved, because while I had volunteered on campaigns, I had not been super plugged into the politics of the area. And so I just set up a bunch of meetings. I met with people that were in elected positions, people who had been campaign consultants and people who had helped the last candidate run that election. And with all those conversations, I really got positive feedback. I think if I had gotten any negative feedback, I might not have run, but I continually got positive feedback and encouragement. And so that I said, okay, I'm going to put everything I have into this election Most people didn't think I could flip the seat because it had been held by a Republican for four terms. And so I just thought, here's what I'll do is hire people that really know what they're doing to lead my campaign. And whatever the advice they give me, I'm really going to do my best to follow that advice because I had heard the prior candidate had not followed political consultants advice. I thought, well, what can I lose? So I ran and won. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It was very exciting. And when you ran, the Republican you ran against, was that the Republican that was already in that seat or was it an open seat that you're running for? He was in the seat. So it was Paul Workman. He had been there okay. for four terms. Again, I don't think anyone expected that the seat would flip. But in 2018, mm-hmm. there were 12 seats across the state that flipped from Republican to Democrat. And I think we all ran on very similar platforms with public education funding being one of our top, if not the top issue. 
And it made a huge difference when we got into the legislature. That was the whole conversation. Our, my first session was around putting more money into our public schools, which was really great. Yeah. So you touched on this a little bit. I was going to ask about your race that you had in 2018 for HD 47, which just to set some context is South and Western and South, far, far South, South, Travis well, County. So I used to always say Western Travis County and far South Austin, but a huge chunk of the Western part was taken out of my district. So now I have a really hard time describing my district. It is the furthest most Western piece of Travis County. But if you look at the map, it now looks like a microscope that's kind of tilted on its side. It's very hard to Mm -hmm. describe the district. But I can tell people some of the larger neighborhoods are like Steiner Ranch, parts of Lake Travis, Bee Cave, Circle C, and Shady Hollow, where I live. As you mentioned, your district tends to be a swing district, Republican, Democrat, Republican going back and forth. What were some of the obstacles that you faced initially? And were they more internal obstacles for you during your race or external? I guess the biggest obstacle is just not having ever run for office before and not really knowing what I was doing. But I had some really wonderful campaign staff who helped a great deal. So everybody says you have to raise an awful lot of money. And that is very frightening and intimidating for most beginner candidates. So I will Mm -hmm. say they would tell me this outrageous figure, you have to raise $400,000. And I would be like, okay, whatever. (laughs) I'll do my best. We ended up raising that much, which to me is just incredible. I, I always think about what all that money could do for people. But I will say a lot of the money spent on campaigns goes to people. So you've got people who are knocking on doors, they get paid. People who are phone banking, some of them get paid. Obviously, you have as many volunteers as you possibly can have. But the reality is in today's busy world, it's hard to get enough volunteers to knock on as many doors as you need to. So we did pay some of them. And just in case we have listeners who are like thinking of running one day, how did you find good staff? For your campaign, especially being a first-time candidate? So I looked at some of the other elected officials in Travis County and asked them who they had used. One of my campaign consultants were Alfred Stanley, who has worked on campaigns forever in Austin, and then Michael Tomlinson, who again has worked on campaigns for a long, long time. And they were an amazing team. Alfred Stanley helped with my fundraising. And like I said, we met the goal that I thought was impossible. And Michael Tomlinson has a turnkey company that does everything from mail to phone banks to block blockers. And so their help was really critical to my winning the race. Finding them, Mm -hmm. though, I will say there's just not enough campaign workers to go around. It's a tough business because it's so cyclical. There's a lot of work right now. Because we have an election in November, but then what do they do in December when the election's over? So they have to figure out a business model that allows them to make a lot of money in a short period of time and then kind of go for a stretch without any income. It's not an easy business. So therefore, you don't see a ton of campaign workers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's tough. For sure. I know that there's organizations like Annie's List that help fill this gap by training folks Mm -hmm. so that there is some staff there, but it still feels like playing catch up. Like it's never going to be enough. Yeah. Well, the Um, Annie's List of the world are just phenomenal. I mean, they do great work with their training sessions. I went to a lot of their training as well. And I just can't thank Annie's List and Emily's List enough. 
it sounds like you had been maybe thinking about running and decided I can see this being a possible option. Was there one thing that kept you motivated during those days when you were like, oh, I really don't want to make those phone calls, but I got to raise that money. <laughs> Was there like an image in your mind? Like, but if only I could change of school of finance or whatever that fill in the blank is. Was there something like that that was just propelling you to keep going? I guess what it was is that because so few people thought it was a winnable race, it was like, I'm just going to put my heart and soul into it until election day and we'll see what comes. I'll be happy just to be able to tell my kids I did my part to try to change Texas, you know, try to make Texas a little bit better. There's public education is important to me, but environment's very important to me too and gun safety. I think those are the three of my top issues. And just thinking that I could have a positive influence in our state that I love kept me going. So I didn't feel like it would be devastating if I lost. I just felt like I'm going to put everything I can into it. Yeah. It sounds like you had a really healthy perspective the whole time. (laughs) That's right. It's like that perfect attachment, but not attachment too. Like (laughs) any way it turns out is going to be okay. The effort obviously was really important to you too. I want to know what it felt like to win. Well, it was great. I mean, you always want to win. (laughs) But the night of the election, we went to, I think it was the Driscoll Hotel where the Travis County Democrats were having their election night party. And my husband remembers, and he was very tickled by the response from Representative Gina Hinojosa. She was like, I didn't think she would win. (laughs) Very excited, but... Real honest. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it just, you know, everybody thought he's incumbent and a Republican yeah. drawn seat. So just tough. But I think one of the things that helped me is that he didn't really have a good answer to folks about what to do about school finance. And that just not having an answer was not very good. It's like you should have some answer to that question because it's on everybody's minds. But there's a lot of excitement. I will tell you, it's really cool early on when you're in the Capitol and people come up to you and say, hi, representative. That kind of tickles me. It's just, it's very cool. Feels like how I'd feel if somebody called me doctor, right? It's like, (laughs) oh, yes, I did that. (laughs) That's so cool. Yes. Well, I just want to say as a side note, the thing I really admire about you as an elected official is that you're so accessible to your constituents and constantly having opportunities for engagement, like the coffee chats that you have. And even during COVID, you had them on Zoom. I like that you make yourself just available to listen to what's on people's minds, what they care about. And if anything, I think that's what representatives should be doing is just listening and hearing and trying to make a difference. But if you're not out on the streets, how can you ever really know what are the priorities for folks, Mm -hmm. regular folks? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you said it, that's what a job of a representative you're supposed to represent, which means that you hear and see your constituents. I think that's one of the most fun parts of the job really is being out and getting feedback, not just from people who agree with me on everything, but people who have a different perspective. We all change our minds when we learn. And it's very interesting to know why people believe something different than me. So I like getting out in public. And I will say Senator Sarah Eckhart is someone that I've kind of followed and emulated because she's done the same thing. I went to some of her coffee jolts. I was like, that's a great way to connect with people. So I will say it's not all my ideas, but I'm Mm -hmm. I'm good at seeing other people doing good things and then copying. Yeah. Well, that makes me think of a question Nicole and I were bouncing around this morning. We were wondering, how do you balance holding your own values 
and priorities with those of your constituents. So let's say you do have interactions with your constituents and the things they care about are very much like, ah, I don't really want to push that forward. How do you reconcile that? I always try to hear what they're saying, what position they're coming from. There are some times when I just don't agree. And I'll give an example being I had some constituents reach out and say, I don't believe companies should force their employees to get vaccinated. And I feel very strongly that vaccinating people is how we get past COVID. And that's so important. We can't have workers out there in grocery stores or restaurants unvaccinated. Likewise, I think the public should be vaccinated. But that was one issue that I just felt like I'm not going to change my stance. I stand behind it. I know there are some people who are upset because they or someone they know lost a job as a result. I just think it's too important. So there's, there are some times when I'm not going to change my position. But there are some other issues where hearing what constituents have said has made me think, huh, that's something I hadn't considered before. Well, it really sounds like the willingness to listen is really what is the backbone of all of this. Like you are willing to hear people out, but you also have a sense of what your own moral compass is, for lack of a better way to put it, so that it's like, I hear you, but this is kind of the limit of Mm -hmm. what I can do about what I'm hearing from you, you know, and sometimes those things will be in alignment and sometimes not, but the willingness to listen is so important. Yeah. So kudos. It's nice to hear. Yeah. I think people appreciate it, even when we don't share the same view. It's, you know, I think it's more appropriate to respond and say, I don't agree than to just ignore. And I think people Mm. these days sometimes feel ignored by elected officials, like they don't hear what I'm saying. I want to let them know. I hear what you're saying. I just don't, I don't agree with you, but here's why. Mm -hmm. That's a really important thing that I actually didn't consider is that acknowledgement. That I Mm -hmm. think sometimes I do think that we're kind of in a climate where people are maybe scared to just be honest about disagreeing because things have become so contentious. But there is a like a well-reasoned and calm way to disagree. We've just somehow lost sight of it. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad that you pointed that out. (laughs) I'm actually going to use that in in my life. Very good. So. Representative Goodwin, you're incredible at (laughs) listening to everyone's opinions, saying I disagree at times. How do we get our elected officials who aren't listening to listen? How do we get their attention? Because I think a lot of people do feel very frustrated and disempowered because they're not being heard. Mm -hmm. Is there a way to break through and let them know this really does matter to me? Please do something about it. Yeah, I mean, I'll give an example on the gun safety issue. I had a pastor reach out to me and say, what can I do to help with this issue? And I told him, you know, here in Travis County, all of us in the delegation in the House agree that we need to pass some gun regulations, whether it is raising the age to buy an assault rifle or whatever. We agree. But what we've got to do is we've got to talk to people who are not in Travis County. And so For this pastor in particular, I said, do you have a connection to other pastors throughout the state who might be willing to talk to their representative? There are a few Republican members who acknowledge that what's happening right now with guns is horrendous. And unfortunately, the members who are on the committee overseeing gun regulations tend to believe that more guns makes us safer. 
And so it's just continual conversations with, we can see by what's happening today that more guns do not make us safer and we've got to do something about it. But I think just having people reach out beyond Travis County and the blue bubbles and talking, educating. There's a lot of places of Texas where there's not even a Democrat running for the Texas House, for example. And so they aren't hearing what the conversations are. And I think it makes it easier for those representatives who don't have someone running against them in a general election to just kind of discount all of those people in their district. And it gets to a point where the people in some of the more rural counties who are Democrats don't want to acknowledge or admit that. Yard signs up. They won't talk about Mm -hmm. politics at all. And so we have to make it so that they feel comfortable just talking about some of these issues. It shouldn't be political, saving the lives of kids and making kids feel safe going to school. That's not political. So we've got to get to where people feel safe having these conversations outside of the safe counties like Travis County. Definitely. I have a son who's going to be starting public school this August. And of course, it's a little terrifying because you're like, oh my goodness, I hope he's safe. And I know some parents are seriously considering, do I even send my child to public school? Do I send them to private school? Do I homeschool them? Pulling out of the system altogether. And that is almost a bigger fear for me personally, because it's just chipping away at this public institution that's so valuable. And the less of us that participate in it, the more it starts to crumble. And that's the thing that scares me the most is that we collectively decide maybe this isn't something we prioritize anymore, but we can't. We have to keep putting it to the forefront because that's how we have our engaged citizenry and make sure we have workers for tomorrow, but just help our kids be good citizens and and members of society and help them grow emotionally, intellectually, mentally, all those important aspects. Yeah. So thank you for helping in that endeavor and, and push for funding and for safety and for the things that matter to a lot of us parents. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know how hard it must be for parents now. And every day I talk to somebody who says, well, we're thinking about maybe homeschooling. And it's like, oh, gosh, we really have to support our public schools and believe in the safety. So that's certainly something that I will continue to push for. We'll wrap up with maybe one or two more questions. But what do you wish Texans knew about being a representative? Maybe something that like if they only knew this thing or that I can't really fix that. Like, is there something that comes to mind about maybe misconceptions people might have? Oh, gosh. Well, all the time I think about how when I talk to voters, a lot of times if they are not as politically tuned in, they don't really know what state government does for them. They often will think about what the federal government does or maybe what the city does. But oftentimes they really don't know what their state representative does. And so I would love to see more civics education, just so people understand it's it's very complicated these days because you have so many different levels of representation. County is thrown in there as well. And so I've always asked people a little pop quiz, you know, who's your state representative? Of course, I don't want to put them on the spot if they don't know. And so sometimes I'll help them out a little bit, but it's also interesting for me to find out, do they know that I'm their state representative or Donna Howard or somebody else's? And then I try to give a little bit of education and tell them that it's so important to vote every time, but if you don't know who the candidates are, you can always go to vote411.org and just type in your address. It'll actually give you your ballot. And so it's just a wonderful tool and resource. I try to share that as much as I possibly can. I really have always encouraged people to vote as much as possible. And my parents were really good at that. 
And so I have always gone out and voted. I will say the one time that it was hardest was when my kids were babies. And so this last session, I did add an amendment to a bill that allows pregnant women or women who have just given birth to be able to vote by mail. So I was very proud of that one very small achievement. (laughs) Yes. That's so great. I voted by, I think I voted by mail in the primary, the presidential primary, claiming a disability. Mm -hmm. I was like, it's COVID. I'm pregnant. I hope I don't get in trouble for this. But it's especially then I was like, do I really want to risk it? Like I could get COVID and- at that time, it was still very uncertain. So we appreciate that. I <laughs> think been through pregnancy. No kidding. It, it really yes. helps. Yes, yes. Well, you know, when I brought that bill forward, the chairman of the elections committee said, oh, we don't need that because women can just claim they can go vote by mail right now or they can vote by mail right now because it's a disability. He didn't say claim it, but because it's a disability. I was like, no, being pregnant is not a disability. Now, I get it in your case during COVID times and just needing to do that for your health, but just I didn't really appreciate the thought from him that pregnancy is a disability. (laughs) Right. Just that language. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I had anxiety, like, is this a disability? Am I getting in trouble? Oh, well. (laughs) Right. So we fixed it. (laughs) Because again, like you're saying, yeah, there's not a lot of clarity and I'm a rule follower. So I felt like maybe I'm bending a little bit. But I appreciate the clarity because that helps us all just to, right. you're pregnant, you're good. Now we just need to build trust back in the postal system and make sure they deliver our mail <laughs> in a timely manner. Agreed. Yes. Well, going back to state government, Nicole and I are really hoping with this podcast just to help demystify it, help people understand a little bit more about what their representatives do at the state level, but also at the city level and the county level, because a lot of times when you have an issue... You're like, my road doesn't work. And you just call someone and and you don't know who actually has jurisdiction over what. So we're hoping to make that clear and more understandable and more accessible. Because when you have problems, there is someone there who should, in theory, have your back and help you and make a difference. Mm-hmm. So we're on that, right, Nicole? That's exactly it, right? Do you mystify it all and make it more accessible? Yeah, that's great. You know, we've had meetings with constituents on so many different issues, like a neighborhood nearby, there was a fire. They don't have fire hydrants in their neighborhood. They didn't really know who to reach out to. So they reached out to the county, the city and the state. And we ended up pulling different people together to talk to them about some options that they have. So we're always happy to, even if it's not in my jurisdiction, to try to bring people together. Another example is a water quality issue on Lake Travis dealt with LCRA, the city of Lakeway, TCEQ, and the residents. And so again, we tried to bring all of them together. I will say TCEQ did not make it, but everybody else did. And then a lot of times we have constituents reaching out about road issues and traffic issues. So we'll talk to TxDOT, see if there's something that we can do. And a lot of times TxDOT has been able to help with planning for a right turn lane or um, putting up some devices to make it more clear where people are allowed to make left turns or not allowed to make left turns. So there's a lot of issues that we can help with that don't involve passing legislation. Mm -hmm. Nicole, do you have any lingering last minute questions? I don't. I mean, I feel like you actually answered questions I didn't know I had. So um, (laughs) no, I don't have any ones, but I really like that last little tidbit you shared, which is maybe not to underestimate what y'all can do, but instead just reach out and ask questions. Because even if you can't 
be of help. It sounds like you would direct people and create coalitions to help people. So yeah, that's great. Yeah. Let's say someone has a state representative that's not as amazing as you are. <laughs> what then where do you suggest that they go? Should they try someone in like a neighboring district to help them? What would be like the next step if they aren't being heard? I guess it kind of depends on what the situation is. You could talk to a different representative, like For example, at the congressional level, we often don't get the responses we want, but Congressman Doggett has always been very helpful saying, I may not be your representative, but I'm still happy to listen to you and to see what I can do to help. You will be my representative now. I'm so excited. But same thing, like if there was anybody in Travis County or Hayes or Williamson that reached out to me about an issue and they said, I'm not getting the response I want, I would certainly see what I could do to help. If it's regarding one of the committees I'm on, then I would, again, I hear from people all around the state about the gun regulations or environmental issues Mm -hmm. just because of the committees that I'm on. So that reaching out to someone that you just think will listen, I say go for it. (laughs) Yeah, to be persistent. Sounds like if the door shuts, find find another another door. door, (laughs) Keep knocking. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, to wrap up, something that we thought would be fun is we're still working on the wording of this, but we want you to mention something that's got your attention. So if it's a book or a movie or an article you read, (laughs) is there anything in the last couple of days that you just can't stop thinking about? I love to read and I read a ton of books, but right at this very minute, I'm reading a book by Stacey Abrams. It's a novel. It Mm -hmm. caught my eye just because of who it's by. She's a romance writer. Uh, well, this one's not romance. This one it's actually okay. like a kind of a governmental spy thriller type thing. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't even know this. Called, you know what? It's terrible. I can't remember the name of it, but it's something to do with the Capitol and it, it's got my attention. So I'm enjoying that. That's so cool. We'll find it and we'll put it in the show. Yeah. <laughs> we will for sure. Well, and I, I'm also a you, romance Nicole? writer. So that connection to Stacey Abrams, even though this isn't a romance, is just always something that like, oh, <laughs> uh, warms my heart so much. Okay, what is catching my attention? So many things I could say, Claire. And I want to not actually, will you go first? Because I don't want to repeat what I already put on social media. I okay. want something new. So let me think. It's okay. I'm going to okay. repeat. <laughs> so speaking of books, I've been reading this book. It's so good, but so sad. It's called The Girls Who Went Away, and it's about women, stories from women between like 1940 to 1973 before Roe versus Wade passed that were essentially forced to give up their children for adoption. It was a time when it was after the war, and a lot of these were women in middle-class families, and these families were like, if you don't get married to the man you got pregnant with, you're not going to keep your baby because you're going to bring all this dishonor on our families. So they would go away to these homes for unwed mothers and be told the whole time, you're going to forget about this experience. You're going to move on with your life. You're going to get married and have children of your own. And it'll just like vanish from your mind. (laughs) Well, spoiler alert, it did not vanish. And it's the stories of these women as grown adults talking about that experience and how it's just, they've carried it with them their whole lives and how awful it was and devastating and traumatizing. And it's, sad to know that this happened, but also very relevant because when we talk about adoption as an alternative to abortion, you just hear in these stories that it's so, so different Mm. than that. So I recommend it. If you want a good cry, you will have one. (laughs) But if anything, just for that knowledge, I think it's so important to not forget what happened. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. I looked up the book title. It's Wild Justice Sleeps. 
while justice sleeps. Okay. And my ears also heard that as wild justice leaps. (laughs) So there's an alternative title for it. Okay. So I think I will just repeat social media because that will give people a reason maybe to come check out our social media handles. But I really enjoyed the Martha Mitchell effect on Netflix. I loved everything about her. She was such a loud mouth woman, but I loved that she was super ladylike, but also super opinionated and was not going to shut up. And it's only 40 minutes, which is also a little nice for a documentary. So Martha Mitchell effect. I also got the biggest kick out of the Usher Tiny Desk concert. It was incredibly fun to watch. And then I'm going to round it out with The Bear on FX. And it's just a really great restaurant show that's super contained and super immersive. So that's me. I like this. It's giving me some more material (laughs) to consume. That's good stuff. Well, thank you so much for your time, Representative Goodwin. We really appreciate it and helping us understand more about your responsibilities and the way the state functions. And we're hoping it'll help other folks understand more and at least know where to turn when they do have Mm -hmm. questions. And get engaged. Thank you very much. It's a great project. You know, I've been thinking about how do we get young people more civics education? I mean, I know even people my age need it, but if we can start young, I know Jolt is doing Mm -hmm. some of that work, but. I don't know. I keep thinking, I do. Anyway, my place kind of full. Multiple fronts, (laughs) multiple fronts, and we want to do our part. So here we are. This is great. Well, thank you. And it was very nice meeting you, Nicole. Nice to meet you too, Representative Goodwin. Thanks. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co host, Claire Campos O'Neill, on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com where you'll find links to all of our social media and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.